to episode 215 of Cinematary. I'm your host, Zach Dennis, and I am here with... Andrew Swafford. And Lydia Creech. In today's episode, we'll be talking about movies that we saw this week in part one. And in part two, we will be beginning our October horror series this year. We're doing horror movies directed by women. And we're going to kick it off with 1971's The Velvet Vampire. But first some programming notes next uh well we're recording this on thursday for the following friday's episode but that following saturday after this episode drops we will be doing a very fun thing and i'm gonna andrew i'm gonna let you uh introduce this because i feel like uh you did a lot of you know work to make it happen right what's the fun thing it's tomorrow night oh are you talking about the thing on friday not the thing on saturday i'm confused days are days are days weeks are weeks who knows there is not a thing on Saturday. There is not a thing on Saturday. There is a thing that is happening on Friday. If you were listening to this podcast on the afternoon or the mid-evening of October 5th, then you can still come to the fun thing. The fun thing that is happening is late night, <laughs> October 5th uh, at 10.30 p.m., there is going to be a live a live film screening, like all film screenings are live film screenings, and a live podcast. Uh, after said film screening uh, at Central Cinema in Knoxville on Central Avenue. We are screening the next film uh, in our uh, uh, Horror by Women series, and that is uh, Slumber Party Massacre by Amy Holden Jones and uh, Rita Mae Brown. Uh, And we're going to be having a live podcast after that screening. That's at 1030 uh, at Central Cinema. We are super excited uh, to be having our first live event. We will be dressed in pajamas. Uh, We'll be taking questions. It's going to be fun. So please come out if you get this in time and are close enough to make it happen. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's going to it's going to be something. It's going to be very fun. Yeah. Uh, We will have like our normal part one next week, but then part two, it will be nice and live. So probably going to be a longer episode than usual, but I think it will be a pretty cool one. Worth. Yeah, it'll be worth it. So definitely check it I'm out. I'm glad I could clarify for you, Zach, what day that was. I got no, I, I have no concept of day. It's all, everything blurs together at this point. Uh, <laughs> the world's going to hell. Anyway, <laughs> speaking of the world going to hell, uh, Lydia, you watched The Devils this week. <laughs> Excellent transition. Uh, I thought so. Okay, so I watched The Devils. It's from 1971, directed by Ken Russell. It's on Filmstruck, which is uh, really good because for a very long time, there was no home release of this movie. Is that correct? There is still no home release in America. Okay. And I also don't think there's ever been a version release that's quote unquote uncut. I don't know exactly what that means because apparently (laughs) uh, the film is real blasphemous and like obscene yeah it's it's screened in full and it was like banned and censored for a very long time in europe britain yeah it is screened in full on celluloid in britain i don't think it's screened in full in america i got to see it on a celluloid print last year or the year before in nashville and it was not complete uh, and i know this because i had seen a fan edit um previously that is complete. I don't know if the one on Filmstruck or Shutter is or not, but probably pretty close. I it felt real blasphemous. It is about uh <laughs> I guess it's based on true events, but there is a order of nuns in the city 
It's somewhere in France. Lodon? Lodon? Lodon. And there's like a coven of nuns, and they're all locked up and away from the world. But the head nun has fallen in lust (laughs) 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 with Father uh, Grandier, who's like a very influential priest. He kind of takes over Ludun after the governor dies, and he's trying to make the city like really independent, not dependent upon King Louis Thirteenth. It doesn't matter. I don't know which Louis. The the son one. They, they, they don't like it. Nobody likes it because obviously, like challenging authority, and so this the head abbess accuses Father Grandier of witchcraft like witchcraft or because she got reject she's been trying to pull strings and like meet him like get him to the covenant that they're all locked up in and it doesn't happen and so i guess in a fit of like spite pettiness she accuses him of witchcraft which is just the excuse that like the government officials need to bring him down and like regain control of this independent city and, like, that sounds all intriguing and confusing, but, like, the main thing about it is everything looks really scary. Um, <laughs> I was, like, really upset by, like, the sets of the nun, the nunnery, the abbot. <laughs> I would like to clarify that nuns convents. Not covenants or covenants or whatever else. <laughs> it, it might be. It might as well be a coven. Okay. Yeah, it, basically, it becomes like a historical witchcraft movie, for sure. But uh, it, everything is made out of like these white bricks. Like the whole city, too. I guess they built up, and it looks really imposing and symmetrical, and like way too clean for what I think 17th century France looks like. Um. And then when the government officials, like other religious figureheads, start getting involved, they're very creepy. They're they have creepy haircuts and <laughs> <laughs> they definitely behave in ways that are horrible and not that religious. There's like a lot of pseudo medical science with alligators and shit. Yeah, and like plague masks. Which are scary in and of themselves. Yeah, and I think I don't. Know, I would recommend people watch this. This this movie actually put me in mind of not a horror movie, but the Audrey Plaza um, Little Wars, Little Hours. Yeah, because it's like they kind of get to this point. There, all the women who are in the covent, uh, Con- convent, convent. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Today we learned a word, Lydia. I'm just going to keep saying the word I made up. (laughs) Convent. Um, They make the point that they're all rich, like, second daughters or not very marriageable prospects. The head abbess has, like, a very severe case of scoliosis, so her back is deformed. So obviously, obviously, quote unquote, no one is going to marry her and, like, take care of her. And they have Vanessa Redgrave. Mm-hmm. And so they're not like necessarily there because they're 
solely devoted to God. And so they do spend a lot of time, like, eyeballing the very handsome Father Grandier, Grandier and play acting at, like, getting married or whatever. And so when they are given an opportunity to just, like, cut the fuck loose... They they do they act, <laughs> like descend into madness, and so the really immaculate, beautiful white abbey, it, it's like suddenly full of candles and smokes and like people debauching, and then like the the public comes in and they're all wearing masks for some fucking reason to just like watch the naked nuns pretend to worship Satan, um, <laughs> and there's just like. A level of decadence and grotesque production design. Like, one of the fathers who disturbed me the most, like, wore a habit, with, but with the arms torn off, which is like a weird fucking detail. <laughs> and glove, and I just, looking at him made me profoundly uncomfortable. Uh, in a way that I don't really know why. Other than it's just like a weird little anachronistic sort of thing. And he had these sunglasses that were like purple lenses. Um, I don't have a good conclusion to that. I think you should check it out if you have a Filmstruck uh, subscription. Especially because it has been hard to find historically. Yeah, you definitely should. Very cool. Um, and what was the word that we learned today, Lydia? Convent. <laughs> Covenant? <laughs> no. <laughs> there will be a quiz um all right andrew you had a couple quick hit reviews that you wanted to hit on yes i'm just gonna throw out two quick ones and then zach and i are going to talk about a new release at the end of this section uh firstly i want to turn people's attention towards a 1980 movie called the changeling directed by peter medic i think is how you say his name uh this is a very um stereotypical almost uh haunted house movie um that is led by the one and only george c scott who you might know from dr strange love or zach's twitter uh avatar uh, rest in peace or Patton. Or Patton. Uh, and the the premise here is that he is a He's a music professor at a prestigious college. Um, he's recently lost his wife and child, and uh, he needs a place to stay for his residency at this uh, academy. Um, and he gets hooked up with this enormous abandoned mansion. It's kind of too, a deal that's too good to be true, how he's able to live in this place. It's like three stories tall and has dozens of rooms, but he's just this one guy and doesn't have a lot of stuff. And so the house is mostly empty. Um, and it becomes one of my favorite subgenres of horror films, just like the big spooky location movie of, you know, dozens of rooms that can be explored, that things can be hidden behind every doorway. And there, there's a level of suspense and surprise at the same time because of that, uh, that construction. And this is a movie that really, it, it reminded me a lot of The Others, the Nicole Kidman film, and how well it used uh, light uh, and sound design in order to unsettle you in, in very subtle uh, ways. Um, but especially the sound design in this movie. There, there are a lot of noises that come from various parts of the house far away from George C. Scott's character. 
Uh, like there's a there's a loud metallic banging that happens at every morning at 6 a.m. and you can't quite identify it. And there's like you know, water droplets coming from from corners of the house and stuff like that. These are things that you can easily kind of brush aside as well. It's just an old abandoned house that's going to make noises. But of course, it is a ghost story, um, and it has a great. Um, what do you call it? A uh, um, um, seance scene right in the middle uh, of the film. Maybe the best seance scene I've seen in a movie. Um, and sadly, it kind of loses its way in the last act. Um, when all is revealed about the nature of the ghost that is living in this house, it then becomes kind of a, a mystery detective story to figure out um, what happened to the person that is now this ghost. Um, and you know, a lot of the, the the movie takes place outside of the house after that point, and it loses a lot of the tension that it had built up. Um, and I think that ultimately there's a lot of loose threads that are left dangling, and maybe not the most satisfying conclusion in the world, though there there are some interesting subtextual stuff about um, who is able to get away with murder and who is not uh, based on. Uh, money and class and status and stuff like that. I won't give anything away more specific than that, but I thought that this was a really effective and really scary, like creaky haunted house movie, at least for the first two thirds. Um, and it, uh, it kind of got under my skin while I was watching it alone at night. So um, I think that people would enjoy the changeling. It just got a really nice new Blu-ray. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to see it on that Blu-ray but I think this has been a movie that's been out of print for a long time. And if you're able to, to pick it up on that new copy, I think that you will quite enjoy it. Um, it's not the Angelina Jolie movie. It is not the Angelina Jolie movie. This is correct. But if you know <laughs> why that movie is named what it is, then you have a hint as to what the twist of this is going to be. But I will say no more. Uh, the other movie that I want to quickly flag up for people's, you know, October spook season uh, festivities is The Stepfather. This is a, a 1987 slasher uh, directed by a guy named Joseph Rubin. Um, but the main draw for this movie, I'm not going to lie, is is the lead actor played by Terry O'Quinn, uh, who, if you've seen Lost, is a great role in Lost. As John Locke, I haven't watched Lost since it was on TV, but I remember that actor making a very strong impression on me when that show was on. Uh, and here he gets to play uh, this uh, prototypical uh, suburban dad. Um, he sells real estate uh, and he has a wife and a daughter and they have like these cutesy little dinners together. And But the daughter's a teenager and she's rebellious and it's it's this very archetypal suburban family dynamic. Uh, but you find out from the very first scene of the movie that Terry O'Quinn is a serial killer because uh, we see a, a scene of him um, putting on a disguise that he then wears for the rest of the movie. Um, and he walks out of a house that is you know, full of the corpses of his last family. <laughs> And then he becomes the stepfather of this new family. And it's a ticking time bomb, only a matter of time uh, before uh, the same thing happens to uh, his new wife and his new daughter who is on to him. Um, and and there's, a, there's a great push and pull between Terry O'Quinn's character um, and the character played by the daughter 
who I think is Shelly Hack. Is that the actress? I could be wrong about that. Correct. Um, and this is a movie that is not incredibly surprising. It, it hits a lot of the basic slasher beats and it came out in, you know, the, the, I guess the second wave of, of slashers after uh, Halloween and uh, Friday the 13th and slumber party massacre and stuff like that. Uh, so I think this is a movie that kind of got lost in the shuffle, but um, the, the main difference is that this, I think that it works a lot better as a story uh, than most slashers do. Um, most slashers feel a little hollow. The actors are just kind of delivering lines. They're not really embodying characters. And I think here it does feel a lot more dramatically compelling, um, especially because of Terry O'Quinn's acting and the charisma he brings to the role. I would put him not on the same level, but in the same conversation with like, Robert Mitchum from uh, Night of the Hunter or Anthony Perkins from Psycho or something like that. He has that level of like, you can't take your eyes off of this villain when he's on screen. Um, but I, I think that the script is, is the core of what makes this movie really uh, work. Um, and if you have been skeptical of slashers in the past, or if you, you've kind of been left cold by the lack of, um, I don't know, meat or substance to them. Um, I think this is one from the era that is done very right. Um, it's not doing a whole lot that's new, but it's done very well. And uh, I I would count it as one of the very best of the genre. It kind of sounds like a fairy tale. Yeah. Um, I can't actually think of any fairy tales that it would map onto, but just like the wicked, not real parent sort of quote unquote. I mean, well, it's kind of a Bluebeard story, too, kind of like Monsieur Verdot or something. So um, I'm interested. Yeah, you should watch it. You'd like it. Um, for my last movie, it's a new release. Um, I wanted to talk to Zach a little bit about um, uh, Assassination Nation, uh, which is is playing wide for the time being. Uh, this was a TIFF movie. Zach, you caught it at TIFF, and I think you had a very different experience than I did. Because uh, you watched it with the Midnight Madness crowd, and and apparently that was uh was pretty wild. So maybe tell, tell me your experience with Assassination Nation, and then I'll I'll kind of give my take. First off, you have to say it like it's Communication Breakdown from Led Zeppelin, and go Assassination right. Nation because it fits in. Establish this. Yeah, yeah, I like that. <laughs> um, no, I watched it. I was like, it was the last movie I watched at TIFF. It was during the Midnight Madness. Um, for those at TIFF, it was at the, uh, who know the different theaters. It was at the Ryerson, so you got to make a make a haul to get over there to 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 watch this movie. Yeah, um, to sit in your cramped little seat. Yeah, and it was a full crowd. They were they were stoked. Um, you know, Captain Nepotism, the director, rolled in. He was crying at the beginning because he was so happy. Wait, why is he Captain Nepotism? So the the director Sam Levinson, who's Barry Levinson's son. So he was. So I, I was kind of like rolling my eyes because he was like, "I'm just, just so glad that this movie was able to get made." You know, in this political culture, I just wanted to have something to say, and I was like, "Dude, your dad's Barry Levinson. You can make a movie. It's not like a you know <laughs> act of God. Like, please." Um, 
And so that happened. Then I watched the movie and I was pretty eh on it. But at the very end of this movie, and mind you, this is a Midnight Madness crowd, so they were jacked up for any any sort of violence. And this was kind of like transgressive violence. So they were like, hey, we're kind of woke also. And uh, <laughs> and so at the end of this movie, there's a, uh, like the, the credits roll in this um, marching band is ro- is going through the streets uh, as, as these credits roll. Well, at this at this particular screening an actual marching band came in so after subjecting myself <sighs> to this mad movie that i was like i'm not super into it this marching band comes at in at, it, it's not even midnight anymore it's 1 30 in the morning yeah. and this trumpet is <laughs> blaring in my in my ear and i'm looking at the guy next to me and he's just like i would prefer to been one of the dead people and from this movie at this moment and i was like i hear you dude and I know you didn't really get to experience this moment as it's actually filmed, but even the the trumpets on screen are a little overbearing at the end of the film. Yeah, I, I, I have so I, I have no idea that. how it actually sounded because I had a a, a literal yeah. trumpet in my ear. So uh, I it I, I don't know. I I feel like it, it it's getting like um it looked like at least from my review from Tiff that I like just was like no. I'm against this movie, and that's not the case. I think it's fine. I got, I you, I feel for me. I immediately rolled my eyes when it opens up with "This is a trigger warning." I was like, "Oh, you're, you're getting us." Uh, it kind of feels like those now this videos on Facebook where it's like, "Hey, we're cutting through the bullshit now." Um, but Assassination Nation, it's a, uh, it follows this these this group of girls in the town of Salem, which. A lot of history, you know, baked in on that all already. Um, but these computer hacks are happening. That's ha- that's uh, releasing their data into the uh, into the community. The first one is this is a the mayor of the town and it's revealed that he uh takes part in these uh cross-dressing events and he uh and i guess spoiler alert i don't know he he kills himself during a press conference after this is all revealed then it hits this um school principal and he kind of tries to fight back a little bit but it, it, it doesn't work and the the mob overrules him and then after that happens uh everybody is everybody's information's leaked and it just kind of goes into mayhem um but yeah i I, andrew i said that i was kind of curious to hear your thoughts on this movie just because it's dealing a lot with um 2018 political culture and guns and violence and uh yeah so i I was curious to hear what you thought about it I, i i i wasn't going in saying oh andrew's gonna hate this i was like i was genuinely curious so it seemed like you like it so i was curious why you liked it i do like it and i definitely am still processing it it's a lot of movie it is it's only a lot of movie it's a under under two hours but it felt much longer than that and i don't mean that as a knock against the movie it just was a lot of stuff crammed into the movie like a lot of plot beats a lot of different things out in the in the the, the current culture that it, it's commenting on or bringing into the movie as a reference. Um, a lot of characters, a lot of plot lines. There are two sections of the movie that feel very different from one another tonally and in genre. Um, so it, it feels like a bit of a saga by the time you're you're done with it. Um, but I did enjoy it i i was i was intrigued by it i was 
I was made to laugh by it. I was shocked by it. Um, I thought it was a good time at the movies. Um, and I thought that it gave me a lot of ideas to chew on, though I don't necessarily know how much I trust the the perspective of the movie on some of these ideas. Um, I, I'll say before, before I get into some of the subtext here, like when I saw the trailer, it really felt like it was going to be kind of a revision or a, a better version of last year's Tragedy Girls, which is a very fun kind of snappy uh, popcorn uh, horror comedy, but it really muddles its message. It doesn't really know what it wants to say, and it's trying to comment on too much and ends up saying kind of nothing. And I think that this movie ended up being a whole lot more focused. It, it is pulling a lot of different threads, but it's all pointing them in the same direction. And I think that direction is about the death of privacy um, in the, the internet era. There's a lot of characters here who are just like coming to grips with the fact that, oh shit, I've had a cell phone for 10 years. Everything I've done on the cell phone for the last 10 years is documented somewhere. And if this information gets into the hands of someone who wants to do me harm, I can very easily have my life ruined, right? Um, and I think that that is, that is a, a place that we are all living in right now, not necessarily in terms of like getting doxxed or anything like that, but uh, in terms of the, the way that our, our data is uh, possessed by various corporations, be it Facebook or Google, or Verizon, uh, like you can, you can download the data feed that, that Google or Facebook has on you. And it can give you like a minute by minute biography of your last, you know, eight, 10 years, depending on how long you've had your smartphone. Um, and I think that that concept is really scary. <laughs> Uh, and this this film is is taking that and and connecting it to um, you know local politics. Uh, it's connecting it to the pressures that girls feel online to to send specifically high school girls feel online to send uh, photos to to boys both in school and kind of like anonymous people on the internet. Um, and and what happens when those things? And Joel McHale. And Joel McHale, the you know mild mannered husband across the street. That's always uh, a pressure. It it really gets across um, this this idea that like we are constantly living online, like we're living in the flesh. We're living just as often on the internet. Um, and when when that self is like constantly documented, it can be like recalled back. What kind of new reality does that put us in? where um, essentially um, everybody can kind of be called out for anything they've ever done. And this is where I start to become skeptical of the movie's perspective. Um, and I'll say that there's a little bit of extra textual stuff that is influencing my, my queasiness with this here. And that is that the movie is distributed by Neon, uh, which is owned in part by Tim League of the Alamo Draft House, uh, who is one of the guys who covered up a bunch of sexual allegations made against uh, Devin Faraci and that other guy who works for Draft House. I forget his name. Um, but I wonder if part of this movie is coming from a place of, well, isn't it horrible that these these really nice guys can easily be taken down by something they said on the internet back in the day? And 
I I think that there's a there's a reading of this movie that that makes it seem like it's coming from that place. Um, and if it is coming from that place, I am not on board. I want no part in it. But I think that the the general phenomenon of us living our entire lives on and all of our past being able to be brought up in, in front of us at any given moment is a more generally scary thing that I think that the, the movie is, is tapping into mostly from the perspective of, of victims and, and young girls specifically, not necessarily the, uh, you know, the, the acute, the accused who deserve our sympathy. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I was so worried for poor Joel McHale. <laughs> right. But there are some sequences at the beginning. There are like, three people that get accused of various different things because of the that happened. And one of them literally yes. isn't doing anything wrong. He is, well, I guess he kind of is. He's, he, he gets outed as a hypocrite uh, because he's an enemy of the LGBT community. Yet, we find out he's a member of the LGBT community. So he, he kind of gets ousted as uh, somebody who's a disingenuous actor. The second person who gets ousted is someone who has a picture, a naked picture of his daughter at six years old. And this is just like a bath photo that any parent probably has in a photo album somewhere. Um, and this gets misconstrued by uh, the narrative created by the press and like the outrage in the community and stuff like that. And, and so I don't know. There, there is, there is a fear that that something that is actually innocent that you did could be misconstrued as something criminal uh, if you know it can it can be put in the right light online, um, and you can see how easily that can get spun into a really harmful like empathy narrative of well let's let's just uh, not believe any accusers because this is all being put out of context anyways. Um, I think that the maybe what makes me have a little bit more sympathy for how much humanity is given to um, its female characters at the center. You have this ensemble uh, featuring a bunch of, of great actresses, Odessa Young, Suki Waterhouse, uh, 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 trans model, Hari Neff is really fantastic um, in this movie. Um, and I think that all of them, they have a great sense of camaraderie, uh, great sense of uh, friendship and they have this defiant sexuality about them that the the group of people that I was with watching the movie, we kind of had an argument after as to whether or not they were being objectified or whether or not they were, they were being portrayed as kind of like radically sexual. Um, I kind of lean more towards the latter. Um, but uh, I think that people will, will have various feelings about that. This is a complicated uh, movie that, I, again, I'm very conflicted on, and I want to see it again and, and figure out where I land on it. Um, but it, it's a really exciting, like, packed uh, watch that, that uses a, a lot of stuff from a lot of different genres. It's got elements of home invasion, elements of rape revenge, uh, elements of, like, the teen horror comedy, uh, elements of, like, an unfriended movie or a purge movie um, in a way it feels like unfriended when the screens aren't on, you know, like we're watching the people like, like meat suit lives um, as opposed to being glued to the screen the entire time. And I, I think that that's a really interesting story to tell, like the, the flip side of being constantly online. How does your impact your, real world flesh and blood self um 
and how 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 does that uh what kind of horror can be uh culled out of that um i i thought that it was fairly exciting in that regard but again i i gotta stew on it a little bit more all right I'll just recommend not having a trumpet blasted in your ear afterwards. <laughs> that affects the performance. All right. Well, we're going to take a short break. We'll be back talking about 1971's The Velvet Vampire after this. Hello, Cinematary listeners. This is Zach Dennis with an important message because I have not talked to you enough during this episode. Uh, Cinematary would like you to know that... We do not want your money. We're not clamoring for your dollars. At this time, we just want to enjoy each other's company and talk about the movies and feel our, you know, distribute our thoughts to the world and become podcasting moguls. You know, simple stuff. No money involved. Uh, However, there are a few things that you could do to help out the show. We would really appreciate it. The first thing is review us on iTunes. I know literally every podcast asks you this. They're like, please review us on iTunes. But it's like important because I don't know. iTunes, this is what they do. This is how this is how the Apple lords constrict us and keep us in their system that's just what happens so we need a a nice little review just take like two minutes one day be like this is podcast review time put us on the list uh secondly you can tweet us we're at cinematary on twitter or better yet send us an email we're cinematary at yahoo.com so we can hear from you if you're just like zach uh, you you have terrible taste why do you keep talking about these superhero movies uh you keep talking also you keep talking about these japanese movies where all they do is, is is drink sake and smoke cigarettes and talk about how life's awful and i'll be like yeah what you're wrong and you'll be like yeah but i'm just emailing you and it'll be a whole thing it'll be a nice discourse think about it um and finally please tell your friends and family you know they should know as well i'm sure they like movies i'm sure they like podcasts we don't know uh to recap review on itunes itunes review day do that secondly send your thoughts twitter email one of those do it third share with your friends and family we would love it do it please thank you now let's get back to the show of episode 215 of Cinematary. In this part, we will be beginning our Horror by Women series for October Horror with 1971's The Velvet Vampire. Uh, this is directed by Stephanie Rothman, and it's written by Rothman, Charles S. Schwartz, and Maurice Jules, and the movie stars Celeste Yarnell, Michael Blodgett, and Sherry Miles. The movie follows a couple that journeys into the desert to spend a weekend with the mysterious D- Diane Lafanu and becomes objects of the temptress's spell. <laughs> I felt like it was kind of a boring logline, so I felt like I'd add some stuff. Rothman made the movie following the success of her second feature film, The Student Nurses, which she made for Roger Corman. While going to school at USC, she became the first woman to be awarded the Directors Guild of America Fellowship, which is awarded annually to a student filmmaker. Rothman would receive a job offer to work for Corman due to her work at USC. 
On working for the producer, Rothman said, I did everything. Write new scenes, scout locations, cast actors, direct new sequences, and edit final cuts. It was busy. It was a busy, exhilarating time. Roger did not teach me these skills. I learned them in film school. But he did share his great exper- greater experience with me, giving me useful criticism and equally important information on how to efficiently organize work on the set so that a film could be shot on schedule. The schedules he set were much shorter than those of the major studios. Since it was his own money he was using, Roger did not want a film to go either either over schedule or over budget. He also taught me a valuable lesson in psychology. He encouraged me, often expressing his confidence in my abilities, and I therefore tried to do my best for him that I could. Her first solo directing gig for him was on the 1967 film It's a Bikini World, which was not an experience she enjoyed. Telling Film Comment, I became very depressed after making It's a Bikini World. I had very ambivalent feelings about continuing to be a director if that was all I was going to be able to do. So I literally went into a kind of retirement for several years until more than than anything in the world I wanted to make films. After the success of The Student Nurses, Rothman turned down an offer by Corman to make a sequel to the movie or the woman in prison movie called The Big Doll House, electing instead to make The Velvet Vampire. Rothman and her husband Schwartz wrote a screenplay that would become 1973's The Student Teachers, but that draft was scrapped early on. Producer Larry Woolner instead wanted to make a vampire movie after 1970's Daughters of Darkness, uh, which is described as an erotic vampire movie, was so successful. Rothman and Schwartz came up with a present-day vampire story originally entitled Through the Looking Glass. Rothman said she was interested in making a vampire female where a female was the protagonist rather than the victim. The script was written over three months, and she deliberately put a lot of comedy into it to make it a little bit different from other vampire movies. The character named Diane Le Fanu was a reference to author Sheridan Le Fanu, writer of Carmilla, and also uh, relations to Mark Le Fanu, front of the podcast little connection there guys corman would later claim to be disappointed by the commercial numbers of the velvet vampire and tied it with an italian horror movie scream of the demon lover as part of a double bill rothman blamed the movie for the blamed the actual movie for the commercial disappointment saying it fell between two stools it's not a traditional horror film nor a hardcore exploitation movie in some places it was booked into art theaters in others it had one had one week saturation release in drive-ins and hard top theaters there was no consistent distribution pattern for it because people responded differently to it and I think that may be part of the problem also it was an independent producer there were a lot of other competing vampire movies at the time with star names but the film has not been forgotten it keeps popping up at festivals and retrospectives which is interesting because it did not draw attention to itself upon upon how well it did at the box office Uh, Rothman and Schwartz would leave Corman in the early 70s to set up Dimension Pictures, where she directed three more features. The couple would leave Dimension in 1975, and Rothman told the Austin Chronicle in 2015 that she struggled to break the exploitation label for her movie, saying, I had good agents, and together we tried very hard to get me work, but we repeatedly discovered I was stigmatized by the films I had made. The irony was that I made them in order to prove that I had the skills to make more ambitious films, but no one would give me the chance. Then there was the other reason, the so-called elephant in the room. I was a woman. No one told me directly, but I often le- learned indirectly that this was the decision, re- decisive reason why many producers would have uh, wouldn't wouldn't have, have agreed to meet me. If that sounds exaggerated, remember that I worked in the American film industry from 1965 to 1974. In some of those years, I was the only woman directing feature films. 
In 2016, she elaborated on this point to Interview Magazine, saying, I couldn't get any work in television. No one would ever meet with me. When it came to feature films, I was once invited by an executive at MGM to go and meet her, which was in the days where there were very few female filmmakers around. I went and met her, and she said to me, we were in a story meeting yesterday. We're getting a new script ready for for a first-time director who we want to use, and we were talking about the fact that we would like it to be a vampire film, something, you know, like the Velvet Vampire that Stephanie Rothman made. My response when I heard this was, well, if you want a vampire film like Stephanie Rothman made, why don't you get Stephanie Rothman? Rothman ended up leaving the industry. She says, for a few years, I ran a small proto-union for a group of University of California professors doing their lobbying and writing a political newsletter about labor issues of concern to them. Then started with a small inheritance. I began, then starting with a small inheritance, I began to invest in commercial real estate. Looking back at her career, she told Interview Magazine, I have satisfaction and regret. Regret that I couldn't have made more films. Regret that I couldn't have made made films that gave me a larger platform onto which to work in terms of finance in terms of not having certain obligations to a certain kind of audience to just to make a film that was dear to my heart in every respect. Not that the films I made don't have aspects that are very dear to my heart. I mean, they're not complete films I would have uh, liked to have made. In In 1971, the New York Times said... Not really sure what this means, but it is to be recommended only if you can see this at the New Amsterdam on the New Amsterdam Theater on 42nd Street in New York City, where audiences loudly, freely and obscenely associate with the action on the screen. The Chicago Reader in 2000 said a high, called it a highly intelligent, deftly poetic reimagining of the vampire myth with the theme of fatal sexuality transferred to a female character. And in 2006, Time Out said it's hard to dislike a movie that strives so hard to offend the vampire fan base. <laughs> On that note, and I apologize, that was a very long, but I got kind of sucked into Stephanie Rothman's career and it was very interesting. Um, let's talk a little bit about The Velvet Vampire. And the thing I kind of wanted to start with that really uh, struck me about this movie was, and it, it seems like this was kind of Rothman's goal with this movie, was to have pretty much it's a female but it's a, it's a Dracula movie, but with Dracula being female. And I felt like it was very interesting to me that when you have a female Dracula that it takes place, uh, female Dracula in America, it takes place in the desert. And there's really no, like her relation to heat was very interesting to me as, as being this American female Dracula, like in any other uh, vampire movie, that's kind of a trope that would signify her being a vampire. But, there's something just about America and this this you know she clearly has this you know somewhat phobia or uh, discernible uh, you know whatever against the heat but at the same time she's still driving around in a dune buggy and living life as <laughs> as she would so um, that was kind of interesting to me what what did you guys make of this movie as this uh reimagined female dracula movie lydia how much experience do you have with like vampire fiction i know you read a lot of like fantasy (laughs) stuff uh kind of a lot i read a lot of like why a teen vampire stuff in high school and now (laughs) honestly um (laughs) and also got like a little bit into like Anne Rice vampire chronicles vampire so I I guess when you're talking about quote-unquote female Dracula you have to kind of start with what is the difference between like male vampires and female vampires uh how do they 
like what's appealing for their victims or like how are they doing seducing or like what does vampirism mean when it's a man or what does vampirism mean when it's a woman uh so to that regard like she's kind of an equal opportunity seductress right because she wants to seduce (laughs) the lady as well um (laughs) and i don't know hashtag feminism (laughs) well um speaking of equal opportunity we'll, we'll get to that but I don't know. She didn't feel like, how do I say this? Sexually dangerous in the same way that like a male vampire is supposed to be to his female victims. Um, the guy that she's seducing, like, oh my God, that guy, he's such a dipshit. Like I was like watching a- the movie and I was like, this guy, Lydia's going to have some thoughts on this guy. <laughs> he has like a... <laughs> Pepe the Frog eyes. And, like, the dumbest fucking haircut. And he's already, like, purposefully flaunting his attraction to the vampire in front of his wife and, like, making her feel bad about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So. So I got laid last night. Is that what you want to hear? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. So, I don't know. When it was the wife's turn to be seduced, I was like, okay, just... I'm glad your husband's dead. Like, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, to go back to your point about like the the manner in which the seduction happens being different with a male vampire versus a female vampire, I, I think that you're right. Um, a lot of people, including myself, have probably come to this movie because it's been cited as a reference point for Anna Biller's The Love Witch, and I think that 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 makes explicit the the implicit. Uh, style of seduction that's happening here like i'm going to kill you with my love right as opposed to like this predatory like i am going to eat you and destroy you and consume you uh from like nosferatu or something like that though in my children's lit class at ut uh, we learned a little bit about how the vampire archetype has changed over time and for a really long time you know, Nosferatu is like associated with the bubonic plague and stuff like that. And vampires were seen as like these rat-like subhuman creatures. And then vampire, and then Dracula comes along and they become these suave, erudite, like kind of, you know, bad boy seducer Like very types. sexually attractive, like yeah. dangerously sexually attractive. And then that like the arc bends all the way to Edward Cullen <laughs> in the Twilight uh, series. Does it start with, like, Bela um, Lugosi in Dracula? Or was it before that? Well, I think it, it has to go... It has to extend past the uh, uh, the Bram Stoker um, novel. Like, before that. Uh, because there's, like, vampires in mythology and stuff like that. Uh, before, before, like, the Gothic era rolls around. Uh, but, yeah, I definitely think that, like... The Bela Lugosi might be the the turning point for like how vampires are depicted in cinema. Though I'm also kind of talking in my <laughs> um, ass here, and I'm not an expert. No, 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 no. I mean, I think that that is a good point. the The thing about uh, the movie that really struck me was going back to this this idea of you have this American version of a Dracula of a vampire and. It uh, rather than going to this mm-hmm. castle with like lightning and rain and uh, expressionistic lighting and <laughs> you know a, a large cape, it's this. I, I, I and it, it, I think it's just you know a, 
one, the the she does have a cape. That's true. She does true. have a cape, though. But it's more like a sexy, like fun cape. It's not like a it's not like a it's not like a black cape. It's, it's a like, sex ah. cape. <laughs> um, I think it's more this. It's more of a product of the '70s and of uh, it being a Roger Corman film. But the well, the, the oh, okay. No, sorry. <laughs> what, Lydia? I was just thinking about the product of like when you have vampires in the old world, like European. There's this like landed gentry, like really elite upper class thing, and then America doesn't cotton with that. So one. Yeah, it's this very laid back. Um, Can you afford a ranch house out in the middle of the desert, secluded? Yeah, it's very laid back but rich hippie kind of vibe that she has going on. Right. Um, which again, kind of. Uh, feels to perpetuate this very Americanness, where there is this lazy leisure to her. You know, she has this extravagant ranch that's out, you know, remote in the desert, but and seems and seems very well off, but also doesn't seem to be doing anything at, at, at the same time. You know, it's not like she has a cover job uh, that she's doing on doing on the side. Um, I mean, she doesn't even really like lure them in with like at least in like. Nosferatu, he's like, oh, I'm gonna go and do this real estate deal. They're just like, no, sh- yeah, th- this one, it's just like she's hot. Let's go, and um, I'm gonna write him a letter. I don't, I don't, I, I think it's, I think it's just <laughs> there, there's something that Stephanie Rothman is kind of channeling that I, it doesn't seem like, um was necessarily originally intended about just this deeply American um what 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 a, what a vampire that that comes from America would look like this fascination with the sun this um this I think that the desert seems like the ideal perfect location for this because you still have that kind of isolation value that you would have from this more European vampire but it still feels like you're connected to the greater uh space of the country well i think it's worth bringing up that you know mythologically the two big weaknesses of vampires are sunlight which gets talked about a lot throughout the movie and then uh the crucifix or crosses uh which kind of comes up as a literal deus ex machina at the end of the movie (laughs) when she's chasing around the protagonist and then they run into a bunch of uh like they're a a steeple, but also a bunch of crosses that are being sold by street vendors and stuff like that. And uh, I think that maybe part of her needing to seclude herself out in the desert is there's just so many fucking crosses in the American communities, just out in public spaces that you have to separate yourself from it. Yeah, and that's and that's true too, as she uh, learns very quickly in the. Uh climax of this movie <laughs> where they where they run into uh the flea market that's just crosses um which doesn't seem like it'd be doing yeah. so well um i did since i i've dedicated a lot of the uh of the notes on stephanie rothman i'm curious what you you guys made of her um just kind of her directing choices you know she's she like i said at the beginning she um was at usc and she was the first woman ever awarded the dga fellowship you know which was a giant honor and then she got this job with roger corman and the thing that interested me and it this is a similar um 
storyline that we'll probably touch on next, you know, next week with the slumber party massacre of this director who uh, is kind of given this this chance to work in exploitation and uh, genre movies and doesn't seem to be able to get out of it but at the same time do you feel like something like the velvet vampire like as she's working in this exploitation field that she's effective at um kind of probing and and and, you know investigating the issues that are so synonymous with these uh this type of film this is what made me want to seek out the velvet vampire um Anna Biller on Twitter shared a quote from an interview with Stephanie Rothman where she's talking about this exact issue. And I just want to read Rothman's quote and then kind of pass it to you guys and see how well you feel like she executes this. But she said, I was never happy making exploitation films. I did it because it was the only way I could work. While I do not object to violence or nudity in principle, the reason audiences came to see these low-budget films without stars was because they delivered scenes that you could not see in major studio films or more supposedly ambitious independent American films. Today, of course, you can see these scenes and more, but we were talking about standards operative in the mid-1960s to 70s when I was working. Exploitation films required multiple nude scenes and crude, frequent violence. My struggle was to try and dramatically justify such scenes and to make them transgressive, but not repulsive. So do you feel like she does that, like taking the scenes that are necessary for a Roger Corman joint and making them transgressive or dramatically justifiable? I guess I just thinking about at the very beginning when the couple are deciding to go to the ranch, they just like get in the bathtub together, <laughs> which <laughs> but that's such a good cut. <laughs> so like we're delivering some important like, OK, get moving information. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess in that sense, it's kind of funny and like, uh, yeah, here's here's the nudity you came for. But also like, but it's so good. I don't know. <laughs> It. But that's such a great scene, but mainly because he's like, "Well, fine, we don't have to go." Cut. They're driving on the road to the, in the <laughs> desert. Like it's fantastic. It's, like she does a great job with that. I think for me, it comes down to one of the things that you brought up earlier, Lydia, of like just how blatant the the flirting is between the male lead and the vampire in front of his wife. Yeah, you know that the movie keeps its cards kind of close to the vest uh, for a little while as to who the protagonist actually is. But eventually the protagonist has revealed to be the, the wife character. Um, and, and we are viewing pretty much all these scenes through her eyes. And I think that these, these kind of titillating scenes that audi- exploitation audiences might be coming for have a sense of betrayal to them. Um, that the the stakes in this movie are not like physical stakes. Is he or is he not going to die? Is he or is he not going to get laid? But the stakes are, is he or is he not going to cheat on his wife? Which is a fucked up thing to do. Um, I mean, the the first scene where he has like a sexual interaction with the vampire, um, it's, it's intercut between them being inside this cabin out in the middle of the desert and the wife laying out sunbathing with a rattlesnake coming up to her slowly and as the vampire is about to kiss the husband the rattlesnake is about to and does bite 
the wife. So they're like equating this sexuality to, I mean, it is all vampire fiction has an element of predatoriness to it, but uh, I think there's a, there's a danger, not just in, Oh shit, this is a vampire. that's going to kill you. But also like you are destroying your relationship with your significant other. And, and I think that that does make it transgressive and, and dramatically um, compelling, but I don't know if that, if that came across for, for you guys. No, I I think it does. I think, also the second part of that quote not about what she's achieving but like using corman as a springboard because a lot of yeah like new wave directors did they came up through the corman school like coppola and scorsese and like that just never happened for rothman which and i don't know if that's because she's obviously like not that thrilled about some of her exploitation things or just being stuck doing it not not thrilled about what she made but like only being afforded that i don't know i think it's it the the frustration comes from the fact that i mean we this this film feels very uh singular in a way like it it, it, like you we talked a little bit about if it uh, relating to Annabelle's *The Love Witch*, which when that came out um, was two years ago now, it it really had this um, this aesthetic to it that felt that kind of permeated a lot of what we're used to seeing, and I felt like um, that was kind of a characteristic of what you were generally seeing to an extent with Roger Corman, just because he was constantly trying to throw stuff at the wall and see if it sticks, and sometimes it was so batshit crazy that it did, but this in a way felt like um, it was trying to aspire for something bigger while also kind of having that schlockiness that uh, that Corman is known for. Like, even in the absurdity of the the dream sequence when you have the and it's and it's kind of grow. Yeah, it's it's just it's it's kind of added to and added to along the oh, film man, where the husband is breaking away from the wife while they're having sex in bed, and he's and he moves toward the the vamp vampire. It like the way it's 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 filmed and it's structured and it it, it there is kind of this amateurish almost uh, B quality to it, but at the same time you could the way that she's. Um, the way that she's editing it and the way that the sound is designed and just all of it feels like at least it's trying to attempt to be something more than just this uh this this boobs and you know boobs and vampire movie you know what do you guys make of that dream sequence do you have any idea what is going on there because i don't know if i do i don't know and the fact that they're like having the same dream they talk about they're both like it's lucid dreaming (laughs) um i guess this is what people talk about when they're like this film it's like a little bit arty but also trashy like just having bed like wireframe bed in the middle of the desert and then like the vampire walks out of a mirror and like that's some art film bullshit that i don't understand (laughs) kind of like the set design of the devils it has a a (laughs) zodorowsky feel to it uh, but I, I, as far as what it, to make of it, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I don't either. I mean, I guess on a I mean, this plot is... mechanical level, it serves as a counterpoint to the explanation we get at the end of the film where the, 
that one-off character is like, oh, well, she she had a rare blood disease and she thought she was a vampire. And I mean, this is also the dream sequence is where you get a lot of like ogling the male lead because the vampire, she's wearing like this full red gown, whatever. Um, and I want to bring this up since nobody else has. Andrew, you sent me this actually, but it's a picture talking about Rothman developed some rules. Just, I don't know whether to elevate exploitation for herself or just kind of try to bring some respectability to her films when she was talking about them in interviews. But anyway, some of the rules that she's had for her own films are like equal amounts of male and female nudity, um, avoiding rape where possible. And if you have to, because sometimes Corman would make her, uh, try to film them as non-voyeuristic and then being very like conscientious about how she was using violence. Like it wasn't predicted or depicted as like erotic or consequentialist. Inconsequential. Without consequences. Yes, there we go. Um, and I think the dreamy sequence is like where she gets to do that first rule. Because you see a lot of the dude, whether you want to or not. Oh, yeah. <laughs> If only his face was a little less... And his haircut! <laughs> All of it, yeah. <laughs> we needed a better dude to ogle, you know? It was like... <laughs> instead, we got this Pepe, Le, the, Pepe the Frog eyed uh. person. He... I, he was he was just I was I kind at that once he was they killed him off I was like yeah that's fine let the two let the vampire and the wife get together like they they seem to be normal people and we got this normal. like uh. bug eyed dude who yeah you know they were normal in the context of that three people right. <laughs> you know continuum um I guess the, the 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 other thing I'm I'm curious to hear about is just. Uh, I kind of want to go back to the actually okay I want to go back to the point of Corman as this uh kind of gatekeeper director again because uh, I was doing research today also for Slumber Party Massacre and we'll talk like I mentioned before we'll talk a lot about how about him and uh, Amy Holden Jones uh, and how he kind of, it, it's a very similar situation that there is this kind of through line be- between these two directors. Um, I don't know. It, 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 do you, when, when it comes to uh, female directors, especially like today getting shots to, to do stuff, it seems, I don't know. I'm, I'm trying to think of like the, uh, the Patty Jenkins, the Ava DuVernay's, the, the, the kind of name, the big name female directors today and the, the shots that they were given compared to someone like Stephanie Rothman or Amy Holden Jones, who, uh, seem very, uh, in, in tune with directors that we talked about during our young critics series, uh, like Alice Gee and, uh, you know, directors like that who were just kind of working in this studio system and were able to crank out stuff but never really fulfill uh what they like desperately wanted to do um and i guess that it seems like it's changed to an extent to today but uh, what, what do you think i don't know it feels like i mean the model of the corman school is prove that you can like meet a budget prove that you can meet a shooting schedule and like still make something interesting and watchable which i think rothman has done and uh, amy holt jones also did but 
it seems like maybe the fact that they were working in this mode of exploitation films, whereas Ava DuVernay, like Patty Jenkins, they came up through television and like independent films, like not done in a studio at all, was their like smaller projects that they proved that they could do it. Um, but like working in such a quote unquote violent sexist genre, like really got held against them in particular. Yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll talk about it more in The Summer Party Massacre, but Amy Holden Jones got a lot of mm-hmm. shit for making a, a slasher as a woman. Um, you know, feminists at the time saw her as kind of like a traitor to the cause. Um, and yeah, I feel like ahead. maybe that happened with Rothman, too. Andrew, you also sent me this paper, and it was talked about whenever Rothman did, like, press interviews or whatever, uh, like the role of her husband as co-director, as co-screenwriter was like always very emphasized. It was always emphasized that like Rothman looked very nice, like was pretty, like had a conventional feminine attractiveness. Uh, so it seems like there's this very kind of pointed, because you're a woman working in this, this genre in particular, it kind of backfires. Which is not fair because a lot of, I mean, I mean, it's not fair, obviously, but like a lot of women today also like really love trash. Like there's a whole movement and like a bunch of blogs you can find and podcasts of like women who. I know we were, I don't know if we're supposed to say this on the podcast or not, but we were supposed to have a guest on this podcast. We were going to have Sydney Taylor on yet again, who was on an earlier Mm -hmm. episode of ours who we love. And she's definitely in that community of like. Uh, women critics on the internet who are just like really into kind of B grade schlock like Holly Horror and uh, 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 Robin and Void Member, Void Member and, and all these people. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that what Rothman has done here is really it's really sad how it's been buried uh, because I think right. that this in a just world uh, this should be looked at as like a foundational work of horror cinema. It's not necessarily like the best of the of horror movies uh, that exist, but like it is an, a historically important horror movie because it is mm-hmm. it is a, a it is a major work of like the tide starting to turn and like just barely starting to in terms of gender parity. Uh, because yeah, go ahead. Oh, and I also think like in a lot of one of the things about women film critics who really love this sort of genre is like kind of having to dig and like recontextualize and like reinterpret the text. And like, I don't think you have to do that with Rothman. Like it's there. Like she put it in, like the subtext is actually intentional. And there's a lot of historical canonical horror movies that do a really good job with gender that are made by men. You know, when I think about like the, the great feminist horror movies, I think of things like, uh, Alien, for example, or even like Rosemary's Baby, for example, even even though the director Yikes. is, you know, <laughs> yeah. a sexual harasser. Um, I think he's a little but, more than that. But yeah, more than a sexual harasser. Uh, yeah. Um, but that's like men speaking well on behalf of women. And that is not the same thing as like women speaking for themselves in the genre. And we we are starting to get that more and more now. Um, but what Rothman did is is really uh, foundational, and it's like the definition of autourism, right? She's working within confines of 
a, a studio system and being asked to meet certain requirements and still making art out of it. Like this is this is the argument that that the French New Wave guys were making about Hitchcock and and John Ford and and Hawks um, as artists artists who were working in this commercial mode, cranking out stuff, but doing something really important in the process. And, and Rothman totally does that. So again, in a perfect world, this should be uh, a foundational horror film for people. Yeah, and it should have also been a, you know, a stepping stone. Oh, like a springboard for her career. Yeah, yeah, to a lot of, you know, that's, we'll talk about it. We'll talk, again, we'll talk about it next week with Slumber Party Massacre. But like, uh, <laughs> uh, Amy Holden Jones did a lot of work with Scorsese and her husband is Michael Chapman, who was the cinematographer on a lot of Scorsese movies. And, uh, it, 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 uh, I have a cool fact about her, but I'll save it for the for the live podcast. But uh, there was a, she was she was very she was very deeply embedded in this in like the, the those big directors of the seventies in the in the Lucases and the Spielbergs and the Scorseses and the Coppolas, and uh, yeah, the, the, it's kind of the same thing. Like this movie, uh, I didn't love it, but but at the, it, there's like this. Um, it really has this vibe going that is is that I found purely unique and kind of fun at times, just because it was so absurd and the people were so absurd. And uh, I, I I really felt like it would have been fun to see a lot more uh, Stephanie Rothman movies. And while there are there there are some, you know, like I said, she did a number of films with Corman, and then she did a. Uh, three or four more with with dimension pictures before moving on uh at the same time her career just kind of washed up and she's was doing real estate and was doing pro you know labor work it, it, i don't know it's 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 kind of a it's 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 a path that you wouldn't see um for other people you know you see somebody like a like an M Night Shyamalan who had this real big high and then he kind of was falling off in terms of commercial success and he kind of went away and then he found this revival and Stephanie Rothman seemed like she was she kind of had that a little bit to an extent and then instead of coming up with a revival she just never resurfaced and uh yeah it, it feels like uh there should have been something else on that on that sad note yeah. <laughs> on that sad note, um, this is a good movie though. You it should is a good watch movie. it. Like it's not just like a sign of what could have been. It's a good movie. I don't mm-hmm. want to make that clear. <laughs> yeah, I guess. I guess the final thoughts. <laughs> any 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 uh, last kind of pitches or, or or mentions of the Velvet Vampire and why people should check it out. Lydia, do you like it? Oh, um, I don't know if I loved it. It's not my favorite, but it is like you said, foundational. And like I see the importance and like what I'm sad for what could have been. I just, you know, there was all that guy was so weird looking and <laughs> he's just such a <laughs> really weird not dude. Attractive. It was just kind of scummy. It was just scummy. It was just a whole combination. Um, all right. Well, that will wrap up our episode of Cinematary. I will mention, though, that this is you can find this whole movie on YouTube. So if you're wanting to check it out, it's on YouTube. Um, this that will wrap up this episode of Cinematary. You can find us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Cinematary on Twitter at handle at Cinematary and on Letterbox at Letterbox.com slash Cinematary, where you can see all the movies that we talked about in this episode. Like we mentioned at the top of this episode, we 
are going to be live next week for our part two. We'll be talking about 1982's Slumber Party Massacre. It's going to be a fun time. If you are in the Knoxville area, please come out to Central Cinema and chat with us. Ask some questions. Have a fun time. We'll be in our pajamas. It'll be it'll be a hoot. I mean, come on, guys. Um, Again, if you're listening to this the day it comes out, it's tonight. Yes. The 5th at 10.30 p.m. Please come. We have time. Exactly. <laughs> Don't listen to Zach. He has no concept of days. It's all it's, it's, it's all a blur. We're living in a terrible, terrible world. Anyway. Every day is a week. <laughs> every, every, day, every day is a week. Every week is a year. What does anything mean anymore? All right, guys. Um, oh, and a, and a little side note for people who are trying to listen to the podcast. We are now on Spotify. I don't know if that changes anything for people. I know a lot of people listen to their podcast on Spotify. If that has been, a, a, you know, if people, if you listen to it that way, we are now available there. Cool thing. Took a while, but it's finally there. All right, guys. We will see you. Hey, can I throw in our, our like sixth last minute? Comment? Yeah, sixth last another another last minute comment. Uh, this feels worth mentioning. Our TIFF coverage is up on oh, that's the website. True too. I forgot we about wrote, that. The, the Google oh, yeah. the Google Doc of our TIFF coverage was like fifty six oh, pages. Please go read our TIFF coverage. It was a labor of love. It was a lot. We broke it down into individual reviews too. <laughs> Just, yeah, it's really nice. Yeah, so you don't have to read all of it. If you want to sit there and, and you know read through the dialogue, that's cool. But we also have, if you're just like, I want to hear what you guys had to say about Greta, or I want to hear what you guys had to say about the Wavelengths program, you can do that too and, and look for specific ones. But yeah, please check out our TIFF coverage. Uh, click on the TIFF 2018 tab at the top of the uh, homepage. We have this nice swanky cover page that t- takes you to the different uh, avenues of how you want to read the coverage. Please do that. All right. Last thing for sure. Thank you guys for listening. We'll see you next week.